Chapters 12 through 17 of the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. Translated by John Eddington Simons. Chapters 12 through 17. Chapter 12. When I had recovered my health, I returned to my old friend Marconi, the worthy goldsmith, who put me in the way of earning money, with which I helped my father and our household. About that time there came to Florence a sculptor named Piero Torrigiani. He arrived from England, where he had resided many years, and being intimate with my master, he daily visited his house, and when he saw my drawings and the things which I was making, he said, I have come to Florence to enlist as many young men as I can, for I have undertaken to execute a great work of my king, and want some of my own Florentines to help me. Now your method of working and your designs are worthy rather of a sculptor than a goldsmith, and since I have to turn out a great piece of bronze, I will at the same time turn you into a rich and able artist." This man had a splendid person and a most arrogant spirit, with the air of a great soldier more than a sculptor, especially in regard to his vehement gestures and his resonant voice, together with a habit he had of knitting his brows, enough to frighten any man of courage. He kept talking every day about his gallant feats among those beasts of Englishmen. In course of conversation he happened to mention Michel Angolo Buonarroti, led thereto by a drawing I had made from a cartoon of that divinest painter. This cartoon was the first masterpiece which Michel Agnolo exhibited, in proof of his stupendous talents. He produced it in a competition with another painter, Leonardo da Vinci, who also made a cartoon, and both were intended for the council hall in the palace of the Signory. They represented the taking of Pisa by the Florentines, and our admirable Leonardo had chosen to depict a battle of horses, with the capture of some standards, in as divine a style as could possibly be imagined. Michel Agnolo, in his cartoon, portrayed a number of foot soldiers, who, the season being summer, had gone to bathe in Arno. He drew them at the very moment the alarm is sounded, and the men all naked run to arms, so splendid in their action that nothing survives of ancient or of modern art which touches the same lofty point of excellence. And as I have already said, the design of the great Leonardo was itself most admirably beautiful. These two curtains stood, one in the palace of the Medici, the other in the hall of the Pope. So long as they remained intact, they were the school of the world. Though the divine Michel Agnolo, in later life, finished the great chapel of Pope Julius. He never rose halfway to the same pitch of power. His genius never afterwards attained to the force of those first studies. Chapter 13 Now let us return to Piero Torrigiani, who with my drawing in his hand spoke as follows. This Bonarotti and I used, when we were boys, to go into the church of the Carmine, to learn drawing from the chapel of Masaccio. It was Bonarotti's habit to banter all who were drawing there, and one day, among others, 
when he was annoying me, I got more angry than usual, and clenching my fist, gave him such a blow on the nose, that I felt bone and cartilage go down like biscuit beneath my knuckles, and this mark of mine he will carry with him to the grave. These words begat in me such hatred of the man, since I was always gazing at the masterpieces of the divine Michel Agnolo, that although I felt a wish to go with him to England, I now could never bear the sight of him. All the while I was at Florence, I studied the noble manner of Michel Agnolo, and from this I have never deviated. About that time I contracted a close and familiar friendship with an amiable lad of my own age, who was also in the goldsmith's trade. He was called Francesco, son of Filippo, and grandson of Fra Lippo Lippi, that most excellent painter. Through intercourse together such love grew between us that day or night we never stayed apart. The house where he lived was still full of the fine studies which his father had made, bound up in several books of drawings by his hand, and taken from the best antiquities of Rome. The sight of these things filled me with passionate enthusiasm, and for two years or thereabouts we lived in intimacy. At that time I fashioned a silver bas-relief of the size of a little child's hand. It was intended for the clasp to a man's belt, for they were then worn as large as that. I carved on it a knot of leaves in the antique style, with figures of children and other masks of great beauty. This piece I made in the workshop of one Francesco Salimbene, and on its being exhibited to the trade, the goldsmiths praised me as the best young craftsman of their art. There was one Giovan Battista, surnamed Il Tasso, a woodcarver, precisely of my own age, who one day said to me that if I was willing to go to Rome, he should be glad to join me. Now we had this conversation together immediately after dinner, and I being angry with my father, for the same old reason of the music, said to Tasso, You are a fellow of words, not deeds. He answered, I too have come to anger with my mother, and if I had cash enough to take me to Rome, I would not turn back to lock the door of that wretched little workshop I call mine. To these words I replied, that if that was all that kept him in Florence, I had money enough in my pockets to bring us both to Rome. Talking thus and walking onwards, we found ourselves at the gate San Piero Gattolini, without noticing that we had got there. Whereupon I said, Frantasso, this is God's doing, that we have reached this gate, without either you or me noticing that we were there. And now that I am here, it seems to me that I have finished half the journey. And so, being of one accord, we pursued our way together, saying, Oh, what will our old folks say this evening? We then made an agreement not to think more about them till we reached Rome. So we tied our aprons behind our backs, and trudged almost in silence to Siena. When we arrived at Siena, Tasso said, for he had hurt his feet, that he would not go farther, and asked me to lend him money to get back. I made answer, I should not have enough left to go forward. You ought indeed to have thought of this on leaving Florence. And if it is because of your feet that you shirk the journey, we will find a return horse for Rome, which will deprive you of the excuse. Accordingly, I hired a horse, and seeing that he did not answer, 
I took my way towards the gate of Rome. When he knew that I was firmly resolved to go, muttering between his teeth, and limping as well as he could, he came on behind me very slowly and took a great distance. On reaching the gate, I felt pity for my comrade, and waited for him, and took him on the crupper, saying, What would our friends speak of us to-morrow, if, having left for Rome, we had not luck to get beyond Siena? Then the good Tasso said, I spoke the truth, and as he was a pleasant fellow, he began to laugh and sing, and in this way, always singing and laughing, we travelled the whole way to Rome. I had just nineteen years then, and so had the century. When we reached Rome, I put myself under a master, who was known as Il Firenzuola. His name was Giovanni, and he came from Firenzuola in Lombardy, a most able craftsman in large vases and big plate of that kind. I showed him part of the model for the clasp, which I had made in Florence at Salimbenes. It pleased him exceedingly. And turning to one of his journeymen, a Florentine called Gianotto Gianotti, who had been several years with him, he spoke as follows. This fellow is one of the Florentines, who know something, and you are one of those who know nothing. Then I recognized the man, and turned to speak with him. For before he went to Rome, we often went to draw together, and had been very intimate comrades. He was so put out by the words his master flung at him, that he said he did not recognize me, or know who I was. Whereupon I got angry and cried out, O oh, Gianotto, you who were once my friend, for have we not been together in such and such places, and drawn and ate and drunk, and slept in company at your house in the country? I don't want you to bear witness on my behalf to this worthy man, your master, because I hope my hands are such that without aid from you they will declare what sort of a fellow I am. Chapter 14 When I had thus spoken, Firenzuola, who was a man of hot spirit and brave, turned to Gianotto and said to him, You wild rascal, aren't you ashamed to treat a man? who has been so intimate a comrade with you in this way. And with the same movement of quick feeling, he faced round and said to me, Welcome to my workshop, and do as you have promised, let your hands declare what man you are. He gave me a very fine piece of silver plate to work on for a cardinal. It was a little oblong box, copied from the porphyry sarcophagus before the door of the rotonda, Beside what I copied, I enriched it with so many elegant masks of my invention, that my master went about showing it through the art, and boasting that so good a piece of work had been turned out from his shop. It was about half a cubit in size, and was so constructed as to serve for a salt-cellar at table. This was the first earning that I touched at Rome, and part of it I sent to assist my good father. The rest I kept for my own use, living upon it while I went about studying the antiquities of Rome, until my money failed and I had to return to the shop for work. But Tista del Tasso, my comrade, did not stay long in Rome, but went back to Florence. After undertaking some new commissions, I took it into my head, as soon as I had finished them, to change my master. I had indeed been worried into doing so by a certain Milanese, called Pagolo Arsago, my first master, Firenzuola, 
had a great quarrel about this with Arsago, and abused him in my presence, whereupon I took up speech in defence of my new master. I said that I was born free, and free I meant to live, and that there was no reason to complain of him, far less of me, since some few crowns of wages were still due to me, also that I chose to go, like a free journeyman, where it pleased me, knowing I did wrong to no man. My new master then put in with his excuses, saying that he had not asked me to come, and that I should gratify him by returning with Firenzola. To this I replied that I was not aware of wronging the latter in any way, and as I had completed his commissions, I chose to be my own master, and not the man of others, and that he who wanted me must beg me of myself. Firenzola cried, I don't intend to beg you of yourself. I have done with you. Don't show yourself again upon my premises. I reminded him of the money he owed me. He laughed me in the face, on which I said that if I knew how to use my tools in handicraft, as well as he had seen, I could be quite as clever with my sword, in claiming the just payment of my labor. While we were exchanging these words, an old man happened to come up, called Maestro Antonio of San Marino. He was the chief among the Roman goldsmiths, and had been Firenzola's master. Hearing what I had to say, which I took good care that he should understand, he immediately espoused my cause, and bade Firenzola pay me. The dispute vexed warm, because Firenzola was an admirable swordsman, far better than he was a goldsmith. Yet reason made it so heard, and I backed my cause with the same spirit, till I got myself paid. In course of time, Firenzola and I became friends, and at his request I stood godfather to one of his children. Chapter 15 I went on working with Pagolo Arsago, and earned a good deal of money, the greater part of which I always sent to my good father. At the end of two years, upon my father's entreaty, I returned to Florence, and put myself once more under Francesco Salimbene with whom I earned a great deal, and took continual pains to improve in my art. I renewed my intimacy with Francesco di Filippo, and though I was too much given to pleasure, owing to that accursed music, I never neglected to devote some hours of the day or night to study. At that time I fashioned a silver heart-ski, shivakur, as it was then so called. This was a girdle, three inches broad, which used to be made for brides, and was executed in half-relief with some small figures in the round. It was a commission from a man called Raffaello Lapacini. I was very badly paid, but the honour which it brought me was worse far more than the gain I might have justly made by it. Having at this time worked with many different persons in Florence, I had come to know some worthy men among the goldsmiths, as for instance Marcone, my first master but I also met with others reputed honest, who did all they could to ruin me, and robbed me grossly. When I perceived this, I left their company, and held them for thieves and blackguards. One of the goldsmiths, called Giovanni Battista Sogliani, called Giovanni Battista Sogliani, kindly accommodated me with part of his shop, which stood at the side of the new market near the Landis bank. There I finished several pretty pieces, and made good gains, 
and was able to give my family much help. This roused the jealousy of the bad men among my former masters, who were called Salvadore and Michele Guasconti. In the guild of the goldsmiths they had three big shops, and drove a thriving trade. On becoming aware of their evil will against me, I complained to certain worthy fellows, and remarked that they ought to have been satisfied with the thieveries they practised on me under the cloak of hypocritical kindness. This coming to their ears, they threatened to make me sorely repent of such words. But I, who knew not what the colour of fear was, paid them little or no heed. CHAPTER Sixteen. It chanced one day that I was leaning against a shop of one of these men, who called out to me, and began partly reproaching, partly bullying. I answered that had they done their duty by me, I should have spoken of them what one speaks of good and worthy men, but as they had done the contrary, they ought to complain of themselves and not of me. While I was standing there and talking, one of them, named Gerardo Guasconti, their cousin, having perhaps been put up to it by them, lay in wait till a beast of burden went by. It was a load of bricks. When the load reached me, Gijarda pushed it so violently on my body that I was very much hurt. Turning suddenly round and seeing him laughing, I struck him such a blow on the temple that he fell down, stunned like one dead. Then I faced round to his cousins and said, That's the way to treat cowardly thieves of your sort. And when they wanted to make a move upon me, trusting to their numbers, I, whose blood was now well up, laid hands to a little knife I had, and cried, If one of you comes out of the shop, let the other run for the confessor, because the doctor will have nothing to do here. These words so frightened them, that not one stirred to help their cousin. As soon as I had gone, the fathers and sons ran to the aid, and declared that I had assaulted them in their shops with sword in hand, a thing which had never yet been seen in Florence. The magistrates had me summoned. I appeared before them, and they began to upbraid and cry out upon me, partly, I think, because they saw me in my cloak, while the others were dressed like citizens in mantle and hood, but also because my adversaries had been to the houses of those magistrates, and had talked with all of them in private while I, inexperienced in such matters, had not spoken to any of them, trusting in the goodness of my cause. I said that, having received such outrage and insult from Gijardo, and in my fury having only given him a box on the ear, I did not think I deserved such a vehement reprimand. I had hardly time to finish the word-box, before Principale de la Stufa, who was one of the eight, interrupted me by saying, you gave him a blow and not a box on the ear. The bell was rung, and we were all ordered out, when Principale spoke thus in my defence to his brother judges. Mark, sirs, the simplicity of this poor young man, who has accused himself of him giving a box on the ear, under the impression that this is of less importance than a blow, whereas a box on the ear in the new market carries a fine of twenty-five crowns, while a blow costs little or nothing. He is a young man of admirable talents, and supports his poor family by his labor and great abundance. I would to God that our city had plenty of this sort, 
instead of the present dearth of them. Chapter 17 Among the magistrates were some radical fellows, with turned-up hoods, who had been influenced by the entreaties and the calumnies of my opponents, because they all belonged to the party of Ragularolamo, and these men would have had me sent to prison and punished without too close a reckoning. But the good Principale put a stop to that, so they sentenced me to pay four measures of flour, which were to be given as alms to the nunnery of the murate. I was called in again, and he ordered me not to speak a word under pain of their displeasure, and to perform the sentence they had passed. Then, after giving me another sharp rebuke, they sent us to the counsellor, I muttering all the while, it was a slap and not a blow, with which we left the eight, bursting with laughter. The counsellor bound us over upon bail on both sides, but only I was punished by having to pay the four measures of meal. Albeit just then I felt as though I had been massacred. I sent for one of my cousins, called Maestro Annibale, the surgeon, father of Messer Libradoro Libradori, desiring that he should go bail for me. He refused to come, which made me so angry, that fuming with fury and swelling like an asp, I took a desperate resolve. At this point one may observe how the stars do not so much sway as force our conduct. When I reflected on the great obligations which this Annibale owed my family, my rage grew to such a pitch that turning wholly to evil, and being also by nature somewhat choleric, I waited till the magistrates had gone to dinner, and when I was alone, and observed that none of their officers were watching me, in the fire of my anger I left the palace, ran to my shop, seized a dagger, and rushed to the house of my enemies, who were at home and shop together. I found them at table, and Gerardo, who had been the cause of the quarrel, flung himself upon me. I stabbed him in the breast, piercing doublet and jerkin through and through to the shirt, without however grazing his flesh, or doing him the least harm in the world. When I felt my hand go in, and heard the closest tear, I thought that I had killed him, and seeing him fall terror-struck to earth, I cried, Traitors! This day is the day on which I mean to murder you all. Father, mother, and sisters, thinking the last day had come, threw themselves upon their knees, screaming out for mercy with all their might. But I perceiving that they offered no resistance, and that he was stretched for dead upon the ground, thought it too base a thing to touch them. I ran storming down the staircase, and when I reached the street I found all the rest of the household, more than twelve persons. One of them had seized an iron shovel, another a sick iron pipe, one had an anvil, some of them hammered, and some cudgels. When I got among them, raging like a mad bull, I flung four or five to the earth, and fell down with them myself continually aiming my dagger, now at one and now at another. Those who remained upright plied both hands with all their force, giving it me with hammers, cudgels, and anvil. But inasmuch as God does sometimes mercifully intervene, he so ordered that neither they nor I did any harm to one another. I only lost my cap, on which my adversary seized, though they had run away from it before, and struck at it with all their weapons. Afterwards, they searched among their dead and wounded, 
and saw that not a single man was injured. End of chapters 12 through 17